a warm welcome, a warm welcome back uh, to our second class. And as people are trickling in, I'm going to just um, open our class today by just kind of bringing in mind a little bit of uh, what we did in the first session. <clears throat> Some of you might even be new <laughs> to this three uh, session course. Um, so in the first course, uh, we offered um, uh, some teachings and uh, some reflections and some practices. And um, um, Kim spoke about uh, the different kinds of a fear. And I think she used the term spectrum, the wide range of or varieties and the kinds of fear and that uh, can be present in our lives, in the world, you know, ranging from, you know, the scare of a spider uh, to all the way to big disasters and even including wars. And um, the task uh, for us is not to uh, deny them, but uh, by opening to possibility of understanding them, to get to know them, know what they are, how they show up, how they manifest, and uh, where they're coming from, and their effects on us. Through this form of understanding, really meeting with them, knowing them more, then we open up some new possibilities to be skillful uh, in relationship with this wide spectrum or different kinds of a fear. And so um, the, um, uh, what was it called? Uh, fright, uh, uh, flight, uh, <laughs> Kim may have to help me, <laughs> freeze and uh, fight. Uh, yeah, and fight aren't the only options to us. Yeah? So those are kind of tend to be, we tend to freeze into those options, but when we're understanding them more, we begin to have a possibilities to open to other possibilities uh, related to fear. And David spoke about um, uh, some skillful means in meeting with fear. Uh, and Suttas spoke about and the gradual training of a sila, samadhi, and panya. And uh, we brought in the recollection of the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And uh, we also offered uh, a teaching that the Buddha practiced with, which is to meet fear where it's at. And not to try to change anything, but really open ourselves to meet with it. And so that's where we kind of stopped uh, last time. And we practiced with it a little bit. And today we'll be continuing the theme and offering uh, some, uh, um, some teachings and practices that it helps us begin to find freedom uh, with respect to fear. So with that, um, I want to open to see if there are any questions and reflections and things you'd like to share before we begin uh, the session today. You can use the Zoom hand if you know how. 
Uh, and it's under the reactions button, I believe. Aileen. Good morning, everyone, and lots of aloha to everyone. Um, I wanted to thank you, Ying, for the guided meditation you did um, in which you helped us to give fear some space, as I recall. And I <clears throat> I have found that when I'm having panic, mindfulness is kind of rough. It's kind of hard to get to. But if I give it a lot of space and just let that fear be in this big space of mind, then it becomes more uh, diffuse. And it's yeah. not such intense energy of panic. And it becomes more diffuse. So I really appreciated that. Thank you. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for naming that. And uh, um, Patricia. Hi. I was thinking about the aspect of the Buddha saying something to the effect of don't lay down, don't move, just do keep doing whatever you're doing when the fear arises. And and then I, my mind went to, oh, well, you know, the certain segment of po- of the population is really good at just being very stoic and kind of walking through and not letting people know they're afraid, but just kind of still, you know, marching ahead and marching forward and doing whatever they're doing. And I, and a part of me said, oh, that's really great. They're they are doing what the Buddha is talking about. But then I thought, maybe they're not, maybe they've frozen because my experience with this segment of the population is that sometimes they, their, um, their feelings are frozen. They don't even know they're afraid or they can't admit they're afraid that that's the story I'm telling myself about this, this uh, group. And I guess I just wondered if you had, if, if I'm seeing something that's that can happen that that people freeze freeze their fear to get through it, and how to tell if you're doing that or if you're actually walking through the fear, or maybe you'll get to that with the rest of the group with the rest of the meeting. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Patricia, for the reflection and and sharing. Yeah, this is a great question. We'll definitely explore more. There are many ways that we're relating to fear. Sometimes we don't even know their presence. We just keep on pressing on, (laughs) doing what we do. Um, And that can be a form of um, avoidance sometimes. And it can be a form of... uh, freeze or you know we don't consciously know we're not mindful of seeing what is here um, but we're following kind of the the uh, habitual reactions of so when something is here we don't even know it is here then we just automatically kind of charge through you know, that could be one possibility. But when we know very clearly, oh, fear is here, kind of like what the Buddha saw, oh, fear arose. Fear is present here. 
Now we can pause and we have a moment of choice. How do we want to meet this? How do we want to meet this? Instead of a following sort of a habit movement of, you know, could be freeze, could be running away, could be escape. Lots of things we could be be doing, and、um, so this meeting with it—it's a moment of making a contact with it. And now we, now maybe different skillful means can come forth, rather than being carried、uh, by the habitual flow of reactivities. And Ying, I know we need to、uh, move move on here in a moment, but yeah, I might also just say. Patricia, since I spoke about that yesterday, that you know, I don't take it to be the Buddha's attitude in Majjhima Nikaya Four to be stoic or to be a kind of a no pain, no gain, or to be a、um, grin and bear it kind of attitude toward experience. Very little of the Buddha's teachings actually make very good bumper stickers or refrigerator magnets, although you see them there. But more,、uh, really, taking the opportunity to, as Ying has said, as we've been saying, get close to the. Get close to the fear, understand it, make friends with it, become familiar with it,、um, but not turning away from it, not freezing, not fighting, not fleeing, but just remaining present、um, with with what comes up when fear is there. Now that's a good segue to go to Diana. She'll offer some more in this territory. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Patricia. Thank you, Ying. Thank you, David. Kind of like I'll set up what I'd like to talk a little bit about now is this idea of this notion of freedom with fear. This class is called Fear, Dread, and Freedom. So it's not all just about fear and dread, but how can we find freedom not only within the experience of fear, but freedom from fear? So acknowledging when it arises, how can we not be pushed around, and what are some of the teachings around this, and how can we、uh, behave, or how can we organize our life, or what can we do so that freedom doesn't arise quite so often? And so maybe I'll start with、um, this little sutta quote that I kind of like. It was、uh, in the handout of, with some of the sutta quotes. And it's、uh, just this acknowledgement that humans have fear. And it's、uh, kind of you know this is a verse and it's a, I kind of like this poetic version. This is at Majjhima six thirteen. Goes free of fear, freed in the fearless, where dreadful serpents slither, where lightning flashes and the sky thunders in the dark of night. There sits a practitioner, free of terror. So even though in the describing this little scary scene, that's okay. Here's somebody who's sitting and isn't afraid, and it's not saying this is the Buddha. It's saying it's somebody else, right? This is just a regular person. And so, of course, the natural question is, okay, well, how can we be like that? How can we become free of fear? And we find an answer to this in、um, another portion of another sutta. This one's not in your handout. This little excerpt. This is at Majjhima six point eight, and it just says flat out.、Uh, maybe I'll just say that the、um, this uses the word conquer fear, and I'll just we might think of、uh, conquer as like、um, we could also translate it as overcome or、um, prevail over. Conquer sometimes can. Bring forth、uh, 
uncomfortable association. So, but it, so here's this verse or this uh, little excerpt. If one should wish, may I become a conqueror of fear and dread and may fear and dread not conquer me. May I abide having overcome fear and dread whenever they arise. Then let them, now here's a list of things to do. Fulfill the precepts. Be devoted to internal serenity of mind. Not neglect meditation. Be possessed of insight and dwell in empty huts. So some of you might recognize this as sila, samadhi, panya, ethical behavior, mental development, and wisdom. This is, we are familiar with this, right? This is part of the Eightfold Path. This is the way that we practice towards the way of freedom. And there might be some disappointment like, oh, really? I was hoping there'd be some shortcut secret way to not have fear. But what is kind of being pointed to here is that the way of practice is a way to uh, less fear and to find freedom within fear. And maybe I'll just give a tiny little story that is part of uh, Sila, right, is to not harm living beings. And I just have this really serious fear of spiders so much like, oh, there's a spider in the bathroom. Oh, my gosh. I I can't go in that room. This is going to be a problem. (laughs) Like, you know, just this whole line of thing of like spiders. Oh, my goodness. But but there was this way in which um, I wanted to take care of ants. Also, I didn't want to harm them. And so I was uh, had this like a um, like a little hand broom and I was brushing the ants into a little dustpan and then taking them outside as a way to take care of these little ants that I didn't want in my house. And there was something about this taking care of these little ants made me feel, oh, these little guys, here you go. Made me kind of extend it over to spiders in some kind of way. I I don't know how to explain Just this care for these small little beings that previously I hadn't really paid that much attention to kind of shifted my relationship to spiders. And then all other little beings. So I don't want to say that I'm completely 100% fearless in terms of spiders, but I can now go into the bathroom when there's a spider in the bathroom. So So flat out here is our instructions to, you know, fulfill the precepts, not neglect meditation and be possessed of insight. But then we can get even a little bit more specific. There's some instructions that the Buddha gives that says, when mindfulness of the body has been repeatedly practiced, developed, cultivated, used as a vehicle, used as a basis, established, consolidated, and well undertaken. Right? This is serious. Like mindfulness of the body, just really doing some mindfulness of the body. And he lists 10 benefits may be expected. Like this is a good thing. We see mindfulness of the body all throughout the suttas. 10 benefits may be expected. Benefit number two, one becomes a conqueror of fear and dread. Fear and dread do not conquer oneself. One abides overcoming fear and dread whenever they arise. So this is this idea, when fear arises, to be present with the physical experience. What does it feel like in the body? Maybe there's a lump in the throat. Maybe the heart rate has increased, or maybe there's some queasiness in the belly. 
And so this to be present for the experience of fear, the bodily experience of fear, one thing that this highlights is that this is different than being aversive to the fear. This is different than being ashamed of the fear. This is different than trying to fix the fear, attacking the fear, or trying to analyze the fear or figure out the fear. This is just feeling the experience in the body. So this is not a mental thing. This is something where we're just tuned into the bodily experience. And there's a number of ways in which this can help. But one is, right, it kind of like disrupts the momentum of what the mind is doing and the spinning of the stories that can happen. And instead kind of like brings the attention towards the physical experience. And in this way, the fear is no longer prevailing over us, but we're just being present for it. But I'd like to introduce something in addition that I think can be immensely powerful and is how I practice with fear. And that is, I just described the bodily experience of fear. But it's part of the human experience that when there's fear, there's a resistance to fear. There's a strong sense of, no, (laughs) I don't want to feel this. Go away. I don't want to feel fear. So I'm, so we have fear and the resistance to fear. They're kind of like together. I'm practicing with the resistance to fear, that sense of no. And there's a way in which to be with the resistance is a little bit easier than to be with the fear itself. This sense of, I don't want this, go away. And so this often, for me, shows up as like tightness in my jaw or in my mouth. Right, a physical experience, or maybe it's something my shoulders go up, or there's tension in my neck, or something like this. So this mindfulness of the body is to both the experience of fear, but maybe that's not available because when we're afraid, it's, everything's not available to us. But can we do the the um, resistance to fear? And these two, the fear itself and the resistance, are kind of perpetuating each other. They're leaning on each other and supporting it. So if you can be with the resistance to fear, as that kind of sh- goes away because you're no longer being resistant because you're being accepting of the resistance. But maybe you might have resistance to the resistance. That's okay. You can accept the resistance to the resistance to the resistance to the fear, right? Somewhere in there, some iteration. And when those, when the resistance goes away, then the fear goes away. So mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the body is a way that we can find some freedom within the fear. But then you might say, well, okay, that's nice. But you know what? I'd actually just prefer not to feel fear, (laughs) And so David yesterday talked a little bit in um, Majima, I'm sorry, uh, Samyutta Nikaya 146 about this uh, vehicle for fear or the way to fearlessness. Um, I'm not, maybe I won't um, unpack that even more today, but um, just if you want to look at it, you would recognize that um, there's also Sila Samaripanya there also. So this way in which we practice uh, for freedom includes practicing for the freedom from fear. But maybe even more specifically, in Majjama 4, we gave you guys that whole sutta. In section number 2, somebody says uh, to the Buddha, Master Gautama, remote jungle thicket resting places in the forest are hard to endure. 
Seclusion is hard to practice and it is hard to enjoy solitude. One would think that jungles must rob a practitioner of their mind if they have no concentration. And the Buddha responds and says, that is so, that is so. So the, this person is saying, you know, it's hard to hang out in forests. <laughs> it's hard to hang out in these jungles. You're telling us to go practice and meditate there, but it's hard. And the Buddha is saying, yes, it is so. And then he continues in section 18, he says, whenever practitioners unconcentrated and with strained minds resort to remote jungle thicket resting places in the forest, they evoke unwholesome fear and dread. They invoke unhelpful, unskillful fear and dread. So if there's a way in which the mind is not settled, then fear and dread can arise. And then the Buddha says, but I am possessed of concentration. This is before he was awakened, right? But he had concentration. I am possessed of concentration. I go to remote, remote jungle thicket resting places and seen as one possessed of concentration. And I find solace in dwelling in the forest. So this recognition that, you know, when the mind is settled and we have a, some collectedness, some wholeness, some gatheredness, some non-distraction, then there's a way in which fear doesn't arise. So this is a way in which we can cultivate these uh, settled places. Settled uh, places. This doesn't have to be the most exalted, uh, you know, the 28th jhana or something like this. But instead, um, just having the hindrances, you know, quiet down. And there's a way in which there can be less fear. And then maybe I'll end with um, just this recognition that Nibbana, like the, the direction we're going, this uh, the goal of practice is itself a place of fearlessness. And this is um, in some you. Samyutra Nikaya 8H. I don't think this is in the handout. I just uh, worked on this this morning. But the Buddha is giving a talk. The setting is he's giving a talk to lots of people. And there's a, somebody in the audience is a poet. And after the um, Buddha gives, is speaking, this, uh, the poet, his name is Vangisa, is really inspired. And he kind of like, hey, can I say a poem? There's something that just really um, arose to me. And the Buddha says, okay. And here's one little stanza of what Vangisa, the poet, says to the, to the Buddha. He's kind of like um, praising the Buddha. Over a thousand practitioners here attend upon the fortunate one. As he teaches the dust-free dharma, nibbana, inaccessible to fear. So here's this poet who also, I should say, was a uh, a monk and was a, a an arhat. Um, he's describing that the Buddha is talking about Nibbana, this place that doesn't have fear. And this, he was, Vangisa was really inspired by this. And then um, another sutta is that also somebody else now is uh, praising the Buddha. And they say to him, they say about the Buddha, the Buddha is the champion of all, the wise one who has untied all knots. He has reached the supreme peace, Nibbana, inaccessible to fear. So this 
idea that the Buddha himself is one who has realized Nibbana and doesn't have fear. And Nibbana is a place that's inaccessible to fear. So, and then maybe briefly, I'll just say, many of us know this story of the Buddha on the evening of his enlightenment. He sits down and says, I'm not going to move until I become awakened. And then Mara is the personification of all the obstacles towards awakening. And one version of the story, there's this, um, Mara brings all these armies to attack the Buddha so that he won't get awakened. And the Buddha just stays there and just meditates. And even though there's all these arrows and there's these elephants and monsters and all kinds of stuff that are coming towards the Buddha, he doesn't have any fear. He stays there. And so for me, I kind of, uh, I don't know, I feel inspired by this, that this um, this capacity to know some gatheredness, some settledness that allows us to not have fear in the way that the Buddha did. So maybe with that, I'll turn it over to Kim. Thank you, Diana, for the inspiring words on less fear and fearless. Um, so now is a chance to explore this a little bit with some um, of the other folks here. And um, I think what Diana pointed to is something that we don't always realize is that fear is not actually ever present. Sometimes we have an assumption that I feel it so often, it's just kind of like lurking all the time in my subconscious or something. And, you know, it may be a strong habit for us, but it's not always there. And maybe what has been happening is that we actually just haven't noticed the times when it wasn't around, you know, when we weren't being driven by fear. So that's what we're going to ask you to talk about is what is it like when fear is released or temporarily overcome? What's it like when fear is absent? In fact, at this exact moment, you might not be particularly afraid. What's a mind like that doesn't have fear in it? Have you thought about that? Have you noticed that? So I'll put this in the chat in a moment, but we specifically would like you to talk about what it feels like um, and specifically what falls away when fear is released and what is now available to you when fear is not present. So I'm going to put this in the chat. They'll be in small groups for you know, 10 or 12 minutes. And let's see. I think that will stay available when you're in your breakout rooms. Okay, are they ready? Give me. Oh, and let me just offer a couple of reminders. As before, please be careful when you're listening and to, you know, not give advice. And, um, you know, there's no need to criticize and not everybody has to think the same way. So this is really, it's not like a normal back and forth conversation with people like you'd have in a coffee house. It's like a exploration of the Dharma with each other. So just letting each other's words um, create a, a picture of, of this topic that you're talking about. Okay, so make sure everybody has a chance to speak, and maybe the person with the shortest hair can start. You will.
All right, so here we are again. I see a few smiles coming back, which I always enjoy seeing. And this is now an opportunity to um, share in the larger group anything that that you uh, contributed in your conversation and that you might want to share with the wider group or if there were any questions. You know, the four of us didn't get to hear all of your good wisdom, and so we would love to have a flavor of how it was for you and what you may have learned. Please raise your Zoom hand with any questions or comments. Or are you all experts on the absence of fear? And This was just too easy. And if so, please let us know your secret. Yeah, I see a hand there on the phone. Is that Michael? Hi, good morning. This is Michael on the telephone. So there was a lot of wisdom in um, the small group, and I have deep appreciation for the different flavors and layer of reflections and that, you know, rolled in our group and it was very helpful and uh, watered my seeds of happiness so deep bows for the question and the small groupies and this beautiful facilitation thank you Michael and now we get to hear from Calliope's blessing wow go for it Actually, that's my iPad's name, so I didn't think to put my name in, but it's Barton. Um, so we had a really interesting group um, of four people. Three of us talked about uh, trauma issues and how they affect us in terms of fear and then how we find our ways away from that. Um and I thought that I thought that was really powerful. Um, it was really really moving. Actually, I felt the kind of like the universe brought all four of us together. And um, one of the things that I mentioned, though, I wanted to just share, I guess, was that for myself, it's difficult to get away from fear. It's 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 actually it's been kind of impossible. Except I've noted when I'm deep in my meditation. In I mean long sittings, often on retreat for several days, and then I'll go deeper and deeper and deeper um, until I realize that, you know, I'm away from those kinds of things, the fear, the anger, the sadness. It's gone. There's, you know, a sense of no self, really, or other levels of the meditation that are uh, very freeing. And for the time that I can reside there, without messing it up by thinking about it, it's 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 beautiful. It's wonderful. And it often leaves me with a feeling of of uh, completeness. And, you know, when the meditation's over, it, per, it pervades for a while. And then another thing I just want to mention is another person um, mentioned basically using rational thought to counter fears. You know, she was talking about something that I'm also facing. Uh, I won't say too much outside the group, but 
you know, obviously uh, a big life change, let's say. And um, she was talking about fears and I'm also having very same fears. And she was rational. He was saying how she uses her rational mind to counter those fears. And I thought, you know, that's, that's brilliant too. I'm, I thought it was a wonderful little, little congregation of four people, to be honest. And just want to say there is a lot of wisdom out there amongst us in the Sangha. I wish we could meet more often, actually, or more continuously. Anyway, thank you. Thank you very much. There's much wisdom in what you said, and that there are so many different dimensions we can bring in to meet fear, including the rational mind in the form of, say, wisdom phrases that we can offer, and also what we discover on retreat, where we're just in a different mind space. And what we're learning at the heart level there is that these things are only in part of the mind, right? They're not present all the time. There's other dimensions that can pervade later. So thank you for being so clear. And maybe just as an overall comment, I'll say it's so helpful to articulate these things, you know, to actually say, yes, I remember an experience where fear wasn't present or I overcame it. We forget sometimes to bring in that clarity about the third noble truth. It's not always there. So thank you so much for what you shared. And... I might just add, yeah, I I think something that brings the four of us together and perhaps this larger community of practice is a conviction that the the rational mind plays a powerful role in our practice or can. And certainly it's not among the Buddhist teachings. It doesn't seem to be a key aspect of the Buddhist teachings that the rational mind is the enemy or something to be suppressed or or dispensed with, but rather something to, uh, among other capacity of mind, to, to develop and set free in the practice. And I would refer to the Majjhima uh, four passages that we read. The This this uh, idea of not changing posture is preceded in Majjhima Nikaya four by the Buddha's rational sort of recollection that, oh, why should I be afraid when I have good friends in the Dharma, for example, right? Or why should I be afraid if my my conduct is virtuous? So there is just just as you described uh, your partner, you're one of your um, um, uh, co-practitioners in the breakout room. Yeah, that application of the rational mind is is a part of it, and it also precedes the ability to sit with the fear in Majjhima Four, Majjhima Nikaya Four. So, yeah, just wanted to double down on that. Thank you. Any of the other teachers want to add anything? Other thoughts coming forth or comments or questions? Maybe I'll jump in with uh, something. I appreciate very much this idea of the rational mind helping us. And, oh, oh, Joe, I see that you have your name here. But I'll just say, and it's not always available to us. So we can't always think our ways out of fears. So I just kind of want to just be explicit about that. And that's part of where mindfulness of the body can come in. Because if we could think our way out of all of our fears, we wouldn't have fear because all of we're, we're expert at thinking and analyzing things. So I'll just show, say that in there. Thank you. Um, Joe. Yeah, I just wanted to share that 
in, well, in the group that I was in, I, I shared that I did, a, you know, there's a very profound um, demarcation between the end of fear and fear itself. And it was back when I owned a motorcycle and I, I was uh, pretty crazy on that motorcycle. But I, in that craziness, I always had this sense of fear just to be safe. You know, I didn't want to overdo the boundaries of uh, what the machine could do. And uh, one day I realized I'd lost that fear. It was just completely gone. And I felt very comfortable. It's like this machine was part of me. And... Uh, when I realized that, I, I then I got scared, you know, because I lost that fear, and my rational mind kicked in, and uh, you know, thought, you know, I thought of the comp, you know, some of the consequences of, uh, you know, skidding or getting in some kind of accident and losing one of my limbs or functions of my body. And I, I sold it, and I never looked back. I've never questioned that decision. And uh, but that that sense of losing that fear was very powerful. And uh, it, I had presence of mind to see that uh, there was a consequences that was associated with it. But the fear itself was, um, you know, it was a motive. It was a uh, it, uh, it was part of making having the enjoyment of this machine. And like I said, once it once it disappeared it was uh, it was time to get rid of the machine yeah hmm. interesting thank you oh i think um we may need to go on um we're going to have another chance for questions later so marianne if you can um hang on we would take you first if you raise your hand again later so i'll pass it on to you now yeah, I'm just really enjoying this um, conversation or this discussion and sharing right now. It actually helps the flow right into this next section of teaching uh, that I'll be offering. Um, we have to talk about death <laughs> in the class of a fear. <laughs> it almost feels like inevitable. But I want to offer this uh, with a uh, rather intriguing dialogue um, that's uh, in the uh, um, Sutta Nipata uh, number um, 516, I think, yeah. And this is a dialogue between Venerable uh, Mogaraja and the Buddha um, regarding uh, the king of death. And he asked the Buddha this question. I'm going to read this. How does one look upon the world so that the death of, uh, so that the king of death does not see one? How does one look upon the world so that the king of death does not see one? Well, maybe the question itself is a bit uh, cryptic. And the king of death, right? And and I was reflecting, kind of, you know, maybe maybe all cultures and a lot of cultures that I'm aware of all have some kind of a myth about death. And this is the case in the ancient India as well. 
And maybe it's because <clears throat> death is something that we human beings really have a hard time to grok. Um, on some really deep level and some really fundamental level, it's something really hard to accept. Um, we don't understand it. And often we live as if it's not going to happen to us. And so here comes a myth, you know, myth come to hold it for us. And so since we can't solve this, we give the problem to the king of death. And so it's going to come and find us. It's to be blamed. But then, you know, we're all rational people. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the non-myth version of this questionnaire, rational mind is, how does one go beyond death? How does one go beyond uh, or escape death? And the Buddha has a response. I'm going to read this response to you. The Buddha said, Look upon the world as empty, Magaraja, being ever mindful, having uprooted the view of self. One may thus cross over death. Well, you know, you may ask why we talk about death in the class of a fear and fearless or fearlessness. Maybe it's kind of obvious that fear and death have just, you know, really strong correlation. And I uh, was reading an article uh, some while ago, which stayed with me. And this is the article called The Only Five Deaths We All Share. And it's written by uh, Carl um, Elbridge. And he uh, created a hierarchy on fear. It's kind of like a pyramid. And, and the base layer of this pyramid is this category of a fear called fear of extinction. And then all the other categories of a fear kind of stack up on top of it. It's some sort of different manifestations of this category of a fear of extinction. And this fear of extinction is um, kind of a more fundamental way to express this notion of a fear of death. And this idea in this article, it says the idea of no longer being arouses a primary existential anxiety in all normal humans. We kind of kind of know this, right, in some sort of gut feeling way, we can know the truth of that. Yeah. And so, in this kind of deep level, um, we can consider fear and death kind of almost have a direct linkage to each other. And so this dialogue, um, even though it was about how to go beyond death, we can also consider this as going beyond fear in some sense. And the Buddha offered something that supports this movement. 
And this is the what the second verse、um, is saying. It says, "When the self view is uprooted, one becomes deathless. One go go across, go over death, go over fear." Now I want to establish another linkage here. When self view is uprooted, one becomes fearless. So the implication is, a fear is also linked with self view, the view of a self. I think Barton was saying this a little bit in the sense of in the deep meditation, a sense of a self gets loosened up and dropped, and then one can become a bit more,、uh, a bit bit less fearful. So how do we understand this? And if we go back to this Fiorocchi um, um, idea that the the base layer of a fear is a fear of extinction, we ask ourselves, what gets extinct? It's this kind of deep sense of existence, isn't it? A sense of I am no more. That's scary. I could feel like a little、uh, butterfly in my own heart. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And then once you have that sense of a self and I, all the other things that belongs to the self arises, right? Because there's there's me, then there's my body, my hair, and. Uh, my image, my thoughts, my ideas, my power—all my possessions—they come about. So I, me, mine all arises out of this notion of self, and all of them are subject to loss too. That's frightening, right? And so we can begin to see. The linkage between the self-view and fear, and so they're connected on so many different levels. And so, no wonder the Buddha was saying, uprooting self-view is a way to cross over death, cross over fear. But how? How do we do that?、And、that's where the first line comes in. Being ever mindful, seeing the world as empty. Diana talked about mindfulness and mindfulness of the body. So mindfulness is key here. Being ever mindful, seeing the world in its own nature as they are. And this is not about us creating yet another philosophy about emptiness. But rather, we're beginning to see the the experience, the world as they are. They are empty of self. I want to offer also a personal story, maybe to help illustrate this a little bit. And so I was、um, once on a meditation retreat in Insight Retreat Center. I got a note. In the middle of the retreat, this is the kind of note you don't want to get on a retreat. And it said, 
Someone smelled scent from me. The moment I got this note, my self-image got crushed. I just all of a sudden my reputation. I've been there for forever. How could this be? And how would my teacher see me? Ah, you know, I can see the whole balloon will start to just start to to expand. But it was in the middle of a retreat, and so I had some degree of mindfulness, and I was became aware of. All these thoughts came, and all of a sudden, I said to myself, "Wait a minute! This wasn't about me. It's about the scent. <laughs> so, it's the scent that is being smelled. Why did I go jump in and kind of make all these claims? It's me." And all these things, all, all these things about me, kind of get kicked up. And so, just with that recognition, oh, this wasn't about me. It's about the scent. All of a sudden, all this—I don't know—a hundred arrows dropped. <laughs> it wasn't me. Oh, I okay. I just, I all I need to do is to go back to、um, my room, smell around, <laughs> see if my clothes has too strong of a detergent. I shake things around, let the smell dissipate as much as possible. That was all it was needed. I didn't need to defend myself more or being afraid of how other people would see me, and feeling sorry about myself. It was just a fluid situation that needed to be dealt with, and it came in and it left. So that was a big lesson for me, and I bowed to the little note. <laughs> I learned a lot from that little note, and and I realized that when we're、um, self-centered, we tend to make、uh, false claims. Of the life situation and、um, experiences that we're in, from the perspective of I, me, mine, and even though the real, the reality of the situations and the reality of the experiences are just they are、uh, what they are, the smells come and go, the sound come and go, unpleasant smells come and go, fear come and go. And by making them、uh, I me mine, we begin to solidify something, become a persistent thing that we had to deal with. And I like to bring in this rational mind, a wise rational mind,、uh, in. And Ajahn Brahm once uh, suggested, uh, I, I thought it was a very worthwhile practice, which is、uh, to learn to rephrase. How we describe our situations and experiences that tend to be from self-centric view to stating the presence of situation or the experience. So, for example,、uh, if you were to say, "Wow, this is a really nerve nervous kid," can you change it to 
nervousness is happening with this kid. Or, um, I'm afraid. Could you change it to, well, being afraid is being experienced. Or, um, you can make it up. You know, I'm running out of time. (laughs) But, um, Learn to use our wise, rational mind to begin to reframe uh, what tends to come out in our situations uh, from this self-centric view to a fluid fluidity of the situation itself, the experience that's happening right here and right now. In this way, we're more in sync with the reality of the ever-changing flow of our experiences, rather than being stuck on our views and ideas. And so this is what the line of being ever mindful, seeing the world as empty, is pointing to. And so the more we live mindfully according to the nature of our own being, and the less we would be caught up um, by maybe the false attributions, and the more we fr- the more free we become. And so, I'll stop there, and um, let David. Thank you, Ying. What a beautiful, what a beautiful talk. And these are deep waters. That, Ling, that, that Ying leads us into. And uh, how might we, in a guided meditation of 15 minutes, um, find ourselves maybe in a little connection with, with Barton's um, revelation that deep in meditation, fear can attenuate as our, 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 um, as our selfing sort of weakens, as our connection, as our obsession, as our... Um, orientation around self weakens, a connection that Ying also draws our attention to. I don't have anything prepared. I was going to wait and see how Ying uh, addressed this. And so I'm just going to meditate. I'm going to open my mouth and let words come out that um, are what's happening in my head as I sort of try to metabolize what Ying has shared, what Diana has shared. Diana has sort of brought our attention a couple times today, and we I think we all did earlier on Tuesday, to mindfulness of the body. And let me just illustrate, if I can, what it comes up to me is how just the simple first instruction we receive to return our attention to the breathing when our attention gets caught up doing other things, how that really uh, leads us directly into these deep waters in a way that um, can reduce our fear, our existential fear, our fear of spiders, <laughs> our fear of um, uh, of scent uh, or other aspects of how we become concerned about self in the world. So find find yourself in a meditative, find yourself back to a meditative posture, bring the eyes down if that's comfortable and 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 uh, supports ease. And Bring attention to the the body. Just notice its weight, perhaps in the in the chair, on the bench, on the cushion, wherever you wherever the body finds itself positioned. 
And then bring attention to the movement of the body that is associated with this, this breathing, the in-breath, the out-breath, the cycle of breathing, the pull and tug of the breathing in and the breathing out. And maybe we can just rest here with the breathing a little bit. <clears throat> and feel comfortable here at rest here. And maybe we can bring our attention to certain aspects of the breathing. Each time the mind gets caught up in things, gets pulled away, wanders away. Each time we find ourselves reminiscing, thinking about the past, projecting into the future, planning. Whenever we find ourselves thinking about other people or thinking about ourselves, we can, we can open our attention back up or bring it back into this gentle movement of the body as it breathes. Why come back to the breath? When we come back to the breath, we come back to this natural source of balance in our experience. Just enough oxygen in, just enough carbon dioxide expelled. The breath knows what to do. The breath needs no direction from an agent or a self. And when we bring our attention to the breath and rest with the breathing, we let go a little bit of that need to do anything, the need for effort. It's a very light touch of effort that brings our attention to the breath, that rests in the breath. We can notice some wondrous things about the breathing. Just this breath is the breath that's important. And then this breath here. And another breath. The breath isn't concerned about, not embarrassed by the breath that happened three breaths ago, yesterday, 10 years ago in childhood. This breath isn't planning the next breath. The breath doesn't seem to have any desire to become a better breather. We can rest in the breathing and as we rest in the breathing, the selfing that is so much part of our lives is able to relax a little bit. Here's something that just happens in perfect natural balance that we don't need to direct, we don't need to make happen. We can take the breath as it is Maybe the breath is a little quivery, 
Maybe it's shallow, maybe it's deep, maybe it's quicker, maybe it's slower. We can just rest in the breath. The mind moves away, and as it does, as the mind gets caught up in something, contracted around something, follows a thread of thought or a spiral of ideas, with that movement of the mind away from the here and now of the breathing, some of the contraction, some of the tightness, some of the sense of being off balance, some of the sense of urgency, has some selfing swirling in and around it. And when we recognize that the mind has become tight or contracted or distracted, gently we can bring attention back to the here and now of this breath, this in-breath right here, this out-breath. And again, we connect with something in the breathing that is naturally balanced, at ease. Unconcerned, confident. We may notice and connect with understanding that the breath has no fear So just this gentle back and forth, this massage of the movement of the mind, inclining the mind back towards center, back toward the here and now of experience, connecting with the body breathing, can recognize that each return, and the reason we return over and over again is each time there is a letting go. and a reconnection with balance with something that's moving slow and sure in our experience. Perhaps some discomfort arises. Perhaps some preoccupation arises. Perhaps there's an awareness of an anxious or concerned undertone as we meet our experience. And perhaps a wave of fear appears, rises, 
attaches to our mind, reaches its peak. And perhaps by connecting with the breathing, we can just sit here or stand or, or lie down or walk, depending on how we're meditating. And recognize that these waves of fear, of concern, of preoccupation, of worry, of anxious, compulsive thinking that they arise and pass. And much like the breath, they come and go without any necessary self in them. Maybe we can hold them as experiences that arise and pass. We can stay connected with the breathing, rising and passing. And seek to develop some comfort and ease here with the breathing. It need not be complete ease. It need not be stable ease. The ease too comes and goes. But some sense of familiarity, of understanding. Ah, this is how fear arises. This is how it passes. This practice of returning attention to the breathing can be a way to hold challenging experience, hold its arising and passing, hold its intensity when it's intense. Here the Buddha suggests, here is a way to meet our experience, no matter how uncomfortable with a measure of comfort. Letting go of attachment and projection, the imposition of a self in our experience, and letting go, freeing, the world of our experience. Thank you. I think there are probably many ways to um, free the mind from fear, free our hearts from fear. And uh, that's just 
one way that came to me uh, listening to Ying and also reflecting on Diana's comments about attention to the body and in this case, breathing. It's nice when fear arises or difficult things arise to recognize that um, I can connect, we can all connect with the Buddha's fundamental practice, mindfulness of breathing. It's, uh, it's, that, it's that simple. So we move now to um, uh, an open, an opportunity for additional questions and, and reflections on, uh, on today's teachings and today's practice. So I remember that Marianne had her hand up uh, and I invite Marianne to come forward with that question if it's still uh, on your heart, still, um, still uh, a, good, a good place for you to ask that question. Is Marianne, where is Marianne? It's my hand. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. There. Hi. Hi. Thank you. I'm, I'm one of those people that um, speaking in front of people brings up a great deal of fear. So I'm managing the flush of fear <laughs> uh, to speak anyway, to yeah. be the fear. Um, so I was really uh, appreciated, David, that you spoke about um, what the Buddha um, brought into, you know, what preceded his ability to kind of be um, in the face of great fear or in dangerous places in the woods. Mm -hmm. And that was really um, being first kind of strengthened and girded, if you will, by tremendous um, faith or trust or whatever that was for him. Um, I, I know you know that better than I do, but um, in my mind, I think about um, being connected to a source of strength or knowing or purpose or fe that fearlessness. And it, and it kind of reminds me of not going, going alone or un protected in a way for fear um and also um i know for some people that if we've experienced a lot of um trauma in our lives breath is not a place that is without fear but i just want to offer that it can become that um perhaps through working with a trauma therapist you can build little islands of safety in your body that eventually can support being with the breath in a way that doesn't trigger more fear. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah. I appreciate everything you say, Marianne, including just you're saying it uh, and sort of, you know, being, being leaning into the experience that we're, that we're talking about in, in, a, in such a lovely way. Yeah, I I, um, I always feel a little reservation about using any object of meditation with the understanding that each object for some people is, is difficult. I, I myself have bad asthma and the breath is not always um, uh, an object of meditation that's free from, from fear and from other stresses. Uh, some of them purely, some of them of the mind and then some of them just the body re reacting to not being able to get enough oxygen. Um, so yes, yes, uh, good point, and I appreciate that. 
we like to respect that and we choose the we frequently choose the breath because it is for many people an easy uh, e one of the easier objects but we attune it we tune up we um, try to attune the teaching to specific uh, uh, cases when you know particularly in smaller groups when we can do that and, and maybe I'll just add that particularly with mindfulness of fear, like mindfulness of the body with regard to fear, mm-hmm. can it be really helpful just to feel in the body that sense of, no, I don't want to have fear, which is kind of maybe the shoulders or the tension in the jaw or the mouth. <clears throat> Excuse me. And those in some ways might even be more obvious or if the, if those, uh, if the breath isn't a good place, if the experience of, uh, sense of no or the experience of fear, if all those places are inaccessible, and let's be honest, sometimes they are inaccessible. When we're having a lot of fear, we just don't have the wisdom or the capability. We can always do mindfulness of the body, the feet on the ground, the feet on the ground. Feeling the pressure. That's just something that uh, helps us not only feel grounded, but is a way that can interrupt the, as I said, kind of like the momentum. So there's lots of different ways we can work with mindfulness of the body, uh, the breath, as well as uh, other experiences. So thank you. Thanks. I I appreciate that, Diana. And one more comment uh, on Marianne's question, which is, uh, I just want to point out that in a sense, by naming the fear, that we have to ourselves, but also in community. Um, that that's a that is again part of what I think the Buddha does in Majjhimanikaya Four is knowing that it's there and recognizing that there's strength enough to take it on right now and ask ask a question or unmute or put up the Zoom hand. So appreciate you uh, you're uh, walking the talk there. I think we have time for one more question. So Kurt, yeah. Thank you. Uh, it seems to me that there's a maybe a paradox of wishing to have no fear while um, trying to accept fear. How does one approach that? That's a big, complicated question for. The last question, but I, I like that a lot. Uh, you know, it reminds me, I guess what I would say first is, you know, in our practice, we hold an aspiration to be free. And at the very same time, we, we you know, we're, we're, we're involved or engaged with sort of not being free, the places that we're, that we're um, stuck or where we hold or where we're attached. And so I think that's, um, it may seem paradoxical, but I think it's one of the sort of ways in which in this practice, we do kind of engage um, with the paradox of our experience. That's what I'm going to say. Ying, you unmuted Diana. Yeah. Yeah, in. maybe I'll just say it's also a good opportunity to see, uh, to maybe discern uh, when that wish to be free is um, a supportive and um, uh, supportive of our way of becoming free versus it becomes something that getting ourselves tangled up. Because if this wish becomes a hammer, <laughs> you know, you just go, I hammer the fear down, that's probably not very helpful. <laughs> but if it's, it's something moves the heart, settles the heart, oh, you know, there is this wholesome wish. You can feel some form of relaxation and ease and that may be a maybe maybe a, may a onward leading 
an aspiration. So Diana, maybe. And then maybe I'll just say one word as we finish up here. I'd like to even add to this paradox because uh, Kurt, I appreciate that you're showing uh, that you kind of like notice this. And we, as building on what Ying said, there's also this uh, concept of hiri, this fear of doing wrong. So that's a type of fear that uh, is a support for us. And then we also have this idea of like, oh, but how to be free of fear. And then uh, the awakening is fear, is fearlessness. So I love this idea that fear is so rich and there's so many ways that we can unpack it. And maybe that will lead me to um, one thing I wanted to say, something that uh, Barton has said, Calliope's blessing, and I think he just left. But um, he said, wow, I wish there were more opportunities to talk about this or to explore fear. And maybe I'll just say that um, me and Tanya Weiser will be teaching a course on the path of fearlessness um, that starts at the end of January. And I'm go- I'm just now going to put in the chat box. Here is um, a link to it if you'd uh, like to sign up for this course. It's freely offered and we'll be meeting once a month and there'll be readings as well as writings. We'll uh, encourage you to do some writing as a way to explore uh, the fear. And then, um, Anne, I see that your hand is up. So uh, we'll remember that for uh, next uh, week that uh, will um, allow you to, um, we'll kind of like start with you. We'll we'll begin with a Q&A period, yeah. Saturday, not next week. Oh, sorry, Saturday. Thank you, David. <laughs> in two days, have no fear. We'll be here in uh, two more days. We hope that you'll join us too. So thank you. Thank you all. Take care, everyone. Till Saturday. Till Saturday. If you'd like to unmute, we can all say goodbye together. So bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye bye. Give a kiss. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. The teachers. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you. Thank you. All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The kids always have a way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's very nice. Sweet. Sweet. Mm. Oh, it's good. I'm going to turn off the recording here. There we go.